Church family, you may be seated, and as you are, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn uh, with me to Genesis 9, as we will uh, be in verses 18 through the end of the chapter here in just a few minutes. As you uh, get settled and get your Bibles and notes uh, together, I want to highlight for you what we will be doing next Sunday, the last Sunday in September now for the last uh, five years has been our Praise and Go Sunday. Typically, it is Praise and Go weekend as we have events all weekend, uh, highlighting our uh, mission partnerships, doing trainings and celebrating what the Lord has done. Normally, we would be talking about our Friday night dinner and our Saturday morning trainings, uh, but unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we are having to scale back uh, how we are thinking about uh, Praise and Go and our partnerships this, uh, this coming weekend or this year. Um, but we are still going to be reminded that we are tasked by God to take the gospel to the nations, and we will do so next Sunday uh, morning. Uh, for those of you that have uh, begun to attend our church within the last year, uh, you have never been through a Praise and Go weekend with us before, let me tell you what you can expect, and this is also a good reminder for everyone else. Next Sunday, we will have uh, Praise and Go commitment cards that we will be handing out to you as you come in uh, to the worship center. There are three parts of these cards. One, uh, dedicated to what you are committing to pray for. Uh, everyone should be able to check those boxes. Uh, one part... Uh, talking about how we are going with the gospel, and you will have the opportunity to uh, express interest in being a part of one of our four uh, Praise and Go partnerships. In uh, non-pandemic years, we tend to send around a dozen adult mission teams in a given year to our four partners. Uh, this year, we have not sent any because of coronavirus, although we do hopefully have at least one coming up later this fall uh, to the Appalachian Trail. But you'll be able to express interest on that, and team leaders will be in contact with you about how you would then be able to serve in 2021 uh, on uh, one of those teams. And then there is a send section, and the send section corresponds with our Praise and Go missions offering. You'll notice in the connector today is the breakdown of the next 12 months of Praise and Go missions offering and where that money will go uh, as you give above and beyond your regular tithes and offerings to the church. And so we would encourage you and your family to pray together this week to determine how you will pray, send, and go, uh, and how we will do so together as a congregation and come ready to uh, make those commitments next uh, Sunday. And then next Sunday night, we are taking multiple events that typically happen in the fall and combining them in, into one. So typically, uh, around this time of year, we have our Praise and Go Dinner, which is a share night where we hear from our uh, mission partners. Uh, we have a worship night. Uh, the last few years, we've held, our worship team has hosted a worship night in the fall, and we also have our third quarter members meeting. We're going to do a condensed version of all of that next Sunday night at 6 p.m. We're calling it our Praise and Go Night of Worship, Share, and Prayer. Uh, we will have a very abbreviated members meeting. When I say very abbreviated, I mean in the neighborhood of five to 10 minutes, uh, members meeting. Our worship team is preparing a worship night that is focused on missions. 
uh, songs like what we sang today where let your kingdom come, let your will be done so that everyone may know your name. And so we'll worship the Lord and pray to him. We'll also hear from uh, via video some of our mission partners, particularly those in Philadelphia and in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So I want you to make plans to be here uh, for that as we, uh, as we celebrate what the Lord is doing and we worship him and pray that he would continue to save people uh, on the Appalachian Trail, the Eastern Shore uh, in Philadelphia and in Africa. I'll invite you now to stand with me as we read uh, from Genesis chapter 9, our text that we will be considering this morning. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you for your word, how it speaks to us, how it transforms our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit who renews our minds, continues to transform us into the image of your Son. As we turn now to what is likely the least considered portion of the story of Noah this morning, would we, God, recognize that this passage is Scripture just as the preceding passages were? Equally true, equally authoritative, equally able to transform our hearts. Open our eyes to your truth now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we will conclude our, uh, this portion of our series in Genesis that uh, addresses the life of Noah. We have, we have seen through several chapters and what has been uh, numerous sermons, Noah finding favor with God the only in a wicked and perverse generation to do so. God choosing in his mercy to save Noah as he will bring his judgment upon the earth in the form of a flood. Telling Noah who obeys to build an ark to bring his family and animals on the ark. And God sending that flood, remembering Noah, drying the earth. And then as we considered last week, God making a covenant with Noah that he will never again destroy the earth by flood. 
We left off last week in this first half of Genesis 9 with this beautiful picture of God's post-flood grace. Reminded even still today when the, rain, when the rainbow is set in the sky that God is promising to never again destroy the world in this way. In many ways, the beginning of Genesis 9 begins the world anew. There is a fresh start for humanity. There is a fresh start for God's creation. It can now be what righteous Noah would have desired for it to be. Several weeks ago, I addressed the paintings that we so often see of Noah and his family and the line of animals coming onto the ark. And I said, you know, we always kind of glorify that picture somewhat, even though pre-flood, the, that this story is a picture of the wrath of God being prepared for the world. But sometimes we see paintings of this setting, the rainbow in the sky, the sacrifice that Noah makes unto God, which pleases God, that represents this covenant between God and man. What a beautiful picture that then is entirely ruined by the sinful nature of man. This account introduces a new pattern to us that will arise numerous times in our series through Genesis. One pattern has already been established, and that is the sin, judgment, and grace pattern, which is prevalent here in this story as well, and we will see it very clearly. But another pattern begins to arise, a pattern of peaks and of valleys, that following the highest moments in Genesis are the lowest moments. Following what should be the most celebrated moments, like Genesis 9, where we saw this covenant between God and man, and it seems as if now creation can have this new start. We see great fall, sin, depravity. Know this. The point of this passage is to, in no uncertain terms, remind us that even though God has restarted his creation with with the family of Noah, sin continued. Sin remained. Sin is still a part of Noah, even though he was a righteous man. It is still a part of his life, and he has passed it on to his sons. So we begin... With Noah, the new Adam populates and works the new earth. For the last two weeks, I've pointed out along the way how Noah in very many ways serves as a new Adam in this recreation event of Genesis where God has now started over. And this story, again, reminds us in so many ways of how, how Noah becomes this and reflects this new Adam to us. And as we progress through this text, I'll point out those ways for you and and show what what God is doing and reminding us of this. Look at verses 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. This is the first of two times that we're reminded of that fact. It's important to the story. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. 
So what we see here in the beginning of this account is that Noah and his family fulfill the instructions of the previous section. As we saw at the beginning of chapter 9 last week, God has instructed Noah and his sons and his sons' wives to be fruitful and multiply. That that was the instructions that preceded the covenant of God between him and Noah. And what we see here in these verses is that they fulfill their instruction. They do as they are told. And we are told that all of the people of the whole earth dispersed from, disseminated from, came from this line. We are all sons and daughters of Noah. Next week, we will consider the table of nations as it just, the Lord in his providence uh, worked out for on Praise and Go Sunday for us to be talking about the nations. And uh, chapter 10 is the table of nations where we will see how all of the nations are dispersed from these three families coming from Noah. And so they, they fulfill this instruction of God. And then Noah takes up a new line of work. In verse 20, we're told, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. The scene now is fully set. Noah's family is doing what the Lord instructed them to do. And Noah, having previously spent the last century building an ark, is now enjoying the life of a humble farmer. I'm not sure if we're supposed to read retirement into this or not, but you kind of get this picture that Noah is now enjoying the land, that Noah is, he's planted a vineyard. It says he began to be a man of the soil, that that Noah has taken up a new vocation or hobby or activity, however we want to think about it. But the description of Noah as becoming a man of the soil is more important than just showing an activity of Noah. Noah is the only man in all of Scripture that is said to be a man of the soil. Now, by saying he became became a man of the soil, it means that he worked the ground and did exactly what it said that he did, was planting a vineyard. But the author here of Genesis has more in mind. He is connecting us back to Genesis chapter 2 where we're told that the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And that passage continues and says in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put man whom he had formed. So Adam, the first man, is formed of the ground and God plants a garden and puts him in it. Noah, the new Adam, becomes a man of the ground who plants a garden, a vineyard. So we automatically are brought in our minds to this comparison between the first man and this new man of this renewed creation, Noah. And if all we had was verses 18 and 19 and 20, this picture would remain beautiful. God, having cleansed the earth of sin, Noah's sons and their wives fulfilling the instruction of the Lord to be fruitful and multiply and all of the nations coming from them and Noah going to his happy place, becoming a man of the soil, planting a vineyard, toiling away in his final 350 years of life. But the story continues and we see the sin of Ham and the righteousness of his brothers. Look with me in verse 21. Noah, he, 
drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. There is great brevity to this verse, and I believe intentionally so by our authors. This verse simply states the fact that Noah overconsumed the wine that was produced from his vineyard, and he became drunk, and that drunkenness led to nakedness. Now stop for just a moment and consider what's happening both within the biblical narrative and the necessary timeline that would have been required for this event to take place. In the narrative, it's intended for us to read this back to back, that we go immediately from the flood to Noah's sacrifice to God's covenant into Noah planting this vineyard and consuming Uh, over-consuming alcohol to the point of drunkenness that led to his nakedness. But what we know is this could not have been right away. That we know from the last verse of this chapter that Noah lived for 350 years. We don't know when within that 350 years this event takes place. It must have been sometime later because vineyards don't spring up from the ground overnight. Wine doesn't produce in a day. And we also know from this, uh, this event that at least some of Noah's children already had children. However, it is intended for us to read this in an immediate sense. It is supposed to shock us. It is supposed to draw this great contrast from this high of God's covenant to this great fall of Noah and then his son Ham. Noah is not said to have sinned here, although he does. His sin is not the primary subject of the text, but we must recognize that Noah has, in verse 21, sinned. We know Noah has sinned because drunkenness is never a righteous virtue in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly, there, are, there is a weighed uh, there, there is weighed the virtue of some wine versus excessive wine. And there are times that, that uh, wine is spoken of in a positive sense, but never in indulgence, never to the point of drunkenness. And that is made clear here by saying that Noah became, lay uncovered in his tent. We know that Noah has sinned because drunkenness is never righteous and it ended up in the same place that Adam and Eve's sin ended for them, in nakedness. So again, we have this connection to the first people. In Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here in Genesis chapter 9, we see Noah drinking from the fruit of the vine, and laying naked. Compared to Genesis 3, where we saw Adam and Eve eating from the fruit of the tree and recognizing their nakedness. Noah has sinned here. And this sin is intended to be read in an immediate sense, right after God has formed his covenant with Noah. In the very next passage, Noah Righteous before God, 
sins. Because sin has continued just as it existed pre-flood, sin exists post-flood as well. But it is not Noah's sin that is the highlight of this passage. It is his son's Ham's sin. Verse 22 tells us in Ham, the father of Canaan, the second time he's telling us he's the father of Canaan because it is important to the story, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, this begs a question for modern readers because this was written in ancient times. What is Ham's sin here? What has Ham really done that is so wrong? If we were to read this story today uh, through a, a modern lens, particularly having been influenced in churches like ours throughout history from people like the Puritans and others, which so demonized the use of any kind of alcohol at all, we would say that Noah's sin is far greater than Ham's. All Ham did was go in and see that his father was laying naked, having been drunk in his tent. But that's not how the biblical author presents it for us here. The text presents it as if Ham's sin is grievous. Now, some scholars see a much more perverse act described in the form of a common Old Testament euphemism. Commonly, in the Old Testament, the term to uncover nakedness almost always means something more within the text. It's a euphemism that, uh, because there's children in the room, I'm not going to describe. But for the adults in the room, you can understand exactly what is being said. While that is possible here, the phrase used is somewhat different, and a literal reading is likely best. So while most often in the Old Testament to uncover nakedness does represent something else, that is likely not what is happening here. Ham is not said to have uncovered his father's nakedness, but that he just saw it. Noah uncovered it himself. So then what is Ham's sin? Well, if we look at what his brothers do in response to what Ham tells us, it gives us a clue to what Ham's sin is here in this passage. So look with me in verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered their nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So we have a stark contrast between how Ham responds to the, seeing his, their, their father's nakedness and how Shem and Japheth respond uh, then to hearing that news. What does Ham do? Ham looks, he sees, and he gossips. He goes and tells his brothers. It would seem as if what he is doing is he is inviting his brothers to come and mock their father alongside of him. But then we see what Shem and Japheth do. They take great care. And the Bible goes to great lengths here to tell us of the care that they take, that they take a garment. It goes as far as to tell us that they laid it over their shoulders, even walking backwards, not turning their heads to see their father out of respect for him. So when we see how these two brothers respond to what their other brother has told them, the sin becomes clear. Shem and Japheth honored their father, even in his drunkenness, and Ham did not. You see, honoring your father and mother is part of the moral law of God. This is codified in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, when we read, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
But before the moral law existed in written form on these stone tablets given to Moses on Mount Sinai, they were, as they are today, written on our hearts. Ham should have known to honor his father because it is part of God's law that we should all know that mothers and fathers are to be honored. And Ham failed to do so. It is interesting that the first commandment with a promise, the first of the Ten Commandments with a promise, is the one broken here. And that the curse that will follow in the coming verses seems to align very clearly with the sin and the promise that would later correspond to it. Now again, we see a connection between Noah and Adam here in the relationship of, with his three sons and their sin. Adam also had three sons that, we're, that are named in Scripture. We're told he had other sons and daughters, but there are three named in Scripture. Cain, Abel, and Seth. Two of those sons were righteous in the eyes of God. By faith, believed in God. One was not. Noah, likewise, had three sons, two righteous, one who was not. And in both cases, the unrighteous son broke one of the Ten Commandments. Cain murdering Abel, breaking the commandment to not murder. Ham failing to honor his father. So we see this connection again between Adam of the first people and Noah, this new Adam in God's recreated post-flood world with sons who are following some the path of sin and others the path of faith and righteousness. And then Noah responds. And we have the curse of Ham and the blessing of his brother. Look with me in verses 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brother. So Noah wakes and somehow finds out what his son has done. Most likely, his righteous sons tell him what has happened. And then something very interesting, but also, I believe, very important to the story that is being laid out for us here in the text, in the bigger picture of what's happening, particularly in the first five books of Genesis, Noah does not curse the son that sinned. We often call this the curse of Ham. I even in the, te- in, the, uh, in the main point here, the curse of Ham, because it's known as the curse of Ham. But, God, or, but Noah doesn't directly curse Ham himself. He curses Canaan, who we would find out in a list later is the youngest son of Ham. And he says, the first words Noah speaks. Remember all these weeks before I've been saying, Noah hadn't talked yet. God's the main character. Noah hadn't talked yet. God's the main character. Noah finally talks. And you know what the first thing he does? He curses his grandchild. Now, some of you are old enough to have grandchildren in this room. Could you imagine being in this situation and one of your children sinning against you and instead of going directly at that child, you curse your grandchild? (laughs) I don't see that happening in American culture because we so prize grandchildren. 
And, and it should stand out to us as odd. And many have written and thought about why does Noah do this? Well, we need to remember previously in this passage or in this, uh, in this chapter, God has blessed Noah and his three sons. And so there, is, there are some who would just take the position to say Noah is not able to curse that which God has already blessed. But I think there's a deeper point. The life and uh, or the story of redemptive history and, and what is unfolding for us throughout Genesis and, and the other books that Moses is recording for the people of God, it becomes important that we would see Canaan as being cursed. Now, before we move from here, I, I want to address this curse of Ham and how, we've, how this has been used uh, throughout the centuries uh, in, in a negative way. I talked about this briefly uh, when I was preaching the, the, the mark of Cain. And I said that the mark of Cain was used by some uh, to promote racism and even to justify slavery. Uh, and that, that that's not the position anyone would hold today. And it should not be the position that any of us should hold. And, um, and I, I had some feedback from that. And people said, I've never really heard people use it that way. Uh, but why even bring that up? Why mention something that nobody even believes anymore? Well, here's why. Because to not recognize the abuses that Scripture has undergone in history allows us to run the risk of falling into the same abuse. So, so let me just stop here for a moment and say that even more than the mark of Cain, the curse of Ham has been used particularly in these United States to justify the subjugation of black people into slavery. Because of the nations that are listed in chapter 10 in that table of nations, a broad stroke brush then was painted over people who were from the Middle East and Africa. And because this curse says a servant of servants shall be he to his brothers, people have used that to apply it across all of time and to all of the descendants of those nations and saying that those people should be servants. You may say, well, we've done away with slavery in our world and, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. We're in this post-slavery, post-racism uh, day where, where nobody needs to mention it. But recognize something, folks. There are still people today who would go to Scripture seeking to show that one race is better than another. And if you run that risk today, can I just warn you, do not come to this text looking for a friend because you do not find one here. This is a curse, and we should see it as a curse, but it is a curse on one specific son of Ham that then becomes applied to his children, but that is ultimately fulfilled, and I'm going to show the fulfillment in a moment, it's ultimately fulfilled long ago in the Old Testament. And if you had any doubt at all, if it has completely been done away with, then know this, on the cross of Calvary, any Old Testament curse was replaced that Jesus has made a way for all to be saved. And in him, there are no Jew or Greek, free or slave. So please do not look upon your brother and think that somehow some ancient curse still applies today and makes you better than he, because it is not so. So let's see where this is fulfilled. 
Let's look into Genesis 10 and just quickly see these nations that would then come from Canaan. Starting in verse 15, we see Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, who would become the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Averdites, and the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. You know how to do that, right? You just read it really quick. Nobody knows if you got it right or not. Afterwards, the clan of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gera and, and far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's important. Adma and Zibion, and as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clan, their languages, their land, and their nations. They say, why in the world would we want to read all of that? Like, what, what does any of that matter today? These, these clans and people groups that existed all these millennia ago, why, why does this matter? It matters because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God is going to give his people, by the way, who Moses is writing this, uh, this account for, he's going to give them instructions in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 20 of what to do when they take the land. And they're supposed to approach people groups in two different ways. For the majority of the people groups that are in the land, they're supposed to offer a peace treaty to. They're supposed to go and say, hey, look, our army's bigger than yours. We can live in friendly relationship with one another. But there were some that they were not supposed to offer that peace treaty to. He says this in Deuteronomy 20, God is giving this instruction to his people. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Did you notice the similarities? Almost exclusive similarity between the sons of Canaan and those people group nations that God in Deuteronomy 20 tells his people to not allow to live in the land at all. And he gives their reason because they are abominable in their practices. If you know much about the story of Genesis, you know that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah fall into great sin. This is what is marked by the Canaanite people of old. They're them and their related clans for centuries were a depraved people who were the nemesis of God's chosen people. Their depravity, particularly their sexual depravity, was widespread. For instance, the term uncover nakedness is used as a euphemism 24 times in just Leviticus 18 to describe the unholy actions of these clans. This passage is, in many ways, setting up both the near and the far-off events of the first five books of the Old Testament. That Noah's curse of his grandson is something that would have been a reality in that moment and remains a reality for centuries to come. And you may see all of these connections between Noah and Adam and all of these connections between this curse of Canaan and, and these people groups that would follow and say, was this then a true event? Because there seems to be so much prophetic and symbolic connection. Should we take this as true? Absolutely. Something can be both literally true and prophetic. And so this event that occurs in the life of Noah and his sons and this curse that Noah pronounces upon his grandson has long-lasting ramifications. But he also blesses 
Noah doesn't just curse, he blesses. Look at 26 and 27. And he said, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Notice here, while Noah has cursed Canaan, he has not blessed Shem and Japheth. So yeah, he is, he's blessing him. No, 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 he blesses their God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Noah recognizes from Noah recognizes the source of faith and righteousness. It is not that Shem and Japheth were righteous on their own. It is God who provides that faith for them. It is God who allows them to walk in his ways. And it is God who Noah blesses. This again connects us to the story of Adam. After Cain has killed Abel and it seems as if Adam has no line Genesis 4 tells us that Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called him Seth for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Just as a line of faith descended from Adam, so does a line of faith descend from Noah. When all seems lost in these in the narrative, at least, these moments after this great high of the covenant between God and his people and Noah and his son sin, there is still redemption to be had. There are still those who are passing on the faith. There are still those who, by that faith, are living in righteousness. And then this champion of these goes out. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah, having seen so much and experienced so much, the last story that we have of his life is one of failure. The last story that we have in his life is one of cursing his grandson. But fortunately, a hope remains. Fortunately, there is a seed that will continue to be passed. So what? A line of faith remains intact as sin continues and the wrath of God remains on those who do not trust in him. This story begs a question for us. Why, if this is like a new creation event, if there are so many things connecting Noah to Adam, didn't God just completely destroy sin in his creation? That's the question I think we're intended to ask here about God is why didn't God just do away with sin? Because to do away with sin would have required the destruction of all mankind. And as we saw last week, God is faithful to keep his word. And in the story of Adam, God made a promise. After Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden and God is pronouncing his judgment upon them, he makes a promise. He says in Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a promise yet to be fulfilled. God would not destroy all of mankind, thus doing away with all sin on earth because God had a promise and God fulfills his word. And here is his promise, that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And that one had not come yet. Noah was not the one. As we continue on and see other heroes of the faith in Genesis like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, they will not be the one. 
If we were to continue to read in the Old Testament and we would get to the judges where we have these incredible stories of conquest and and we get to King David who is a man after God's own heart and God forms a new covenant with him and his son after him, Solomon, and, and we continue through the prophets, none of them would be this one. But Jesus is the one. All of this leading us to the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And until he came, sin must remain. Because for humanity remains, sin would remain. If there's anything this part of Noah's story teaches us, it's this. No matter how high we think we get, the low is always possible. Because of that root of sin that remains in us, no matter how good we think we're doing, we are very susceptible to drunkenness and nakedness and disobedience to our parents. We are are just as susceptible as Noah and his sons were in these highs and lows. Sin remains, but so does a line of faith. And for those who trust in God For those who have put their faith in Jesus, who is the one who fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, beginning with that promise that one would crush the head of the serpent, there is no longer wrath that remains on them. We see the wrath of God remain on Canaan. And we will see it in the story of Genesis. And if we were to continue on in the Old Testament, we would continue to see time and again the wrath of God on that sinful people just as it remains on those who are still dead in their trespasses and sin today. But hope remains. We are introduced to Noah in Genesis chapter 5 by his father. His father, Lamech, 182 years old, fathers a son named Noah and says this of him, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. See, Noah didn't bring relief because he was obedient to God to build an ark. He didn't bring relief because he was obedient to God to fill that ark with animals and his family. He, wasn't, he didn't bring relief because he was faithful to God to offer a sacrifice to him and to enter that covenant that we saw last week between God and Noah. No, Noah brought relief because he passed on the faith. Because a line of faith remains that leads to Christ. And it is only through Christ that we find relief from our sin. So friend, if you do not have that relief today, I would implore you come to faith in Jesus, trusting in him for the remission of your sins, knowing that he died in your place so that you may be saved. For those that are in Christ, recognizing that our very next step could be utter fall, continue to live in him. Continue to walk in him, continue to rely on him day by day. The one who birthed in you new life and gave to you his righteousness. Let's pray together. God, now we come to you grateful that relief has been provided to us. That of old, these ancient lines passed down faith from one generation to the next ultimately leading to Christ who fulfills all of the promises and that we can take part in that, being made right with you through a relationship with him that comes only by faith. 
thank you for your grace because we do not deserve that. But you give it to us, you extend it to us. But you continue to do that now as you birth life and new hearts, we pray. Just walk in you, recognizing our, the great draw that we fight against to fall back into temptation and sin. Protect us and guide us, we pray, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen.